The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, 1123. Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. <laughs> Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're continuing our series of 25 years, a loving look back at the Ravens' history from uh, 1996 really to the present and uh, talking about some individual topics at some depth, hopefully with a little bit shorter episodes than you used to on the defense and offense. Uh, Here to join me with a very interesting one today is Dan Watson. Dan, how are you doing? Hey, I'm having a good uh, Thanksgiving break. How about you? Yeah, I can't complain at all. You you spending with family tomorrow? Uh, I'm we am, we are staying home because my wife uh, just had a baby three months ago, so we're keeping to ourselves. Unfortunately, just uh, but very happy about that. And um, 
congratulations oh, thank you. On, on, on the baby. And, uh, you know, at some point people will accept you again, even with a young child into their Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about the early Modell ownership years. So the early Ravens uh, years under Modell's ownership and, and kind of how that was different from the Bishotti years to, to a certain degree. But uh, Dan has done a lot of research looking at a book by John Stedman and other information about the move to Baltimore and Modell's financial uh, situation that he's going to share with us. I think it's a very compelling discussion and it differs in some ways from Joe Platania's uh, and my discussion of how the Baltimore got a team. Uh, but there are overlapping elements of that, correct, Dan? So we don't want to just rehash the previous podcast you had about Baltimore's and Maryland's efforts to bring a new team to the city. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of skip all of that and just go ahead to how did the Browns ultimately move to Baltimore? Okay, let's let's talk about that then. Um, so what, what was the problem in Cleveland that led to Modell leaving? Yes. So... Modell had been the landlord of the Cleveland Brown Stadium for some time prior to the move. And he was he was the landlord for the Cleveland Indians, um, who in 94, I believe, moved to Jacobs Field, a brand new stadium. So he'd lost his tenant and all the income he had from that. Um, the background of the Baltimore trying to get the team is a sort of a political background of Schaefer was the mayor of Baltimore. When the Colts leave town, he becomes the governor in 86 of Maryland. Um, and over that time, and that's what you covered in the previous podcast is that they tried to get an expansion team. So mm-hmm. that doesn't work in 94. We have a new governor elected Paris Glenn Denning and his effort becomes, let's try to get a team in any way we can. And the media, Maryland stadium authority starts talking to lots of different teams. Ultimately, they convince Cleveland to move to Baltimore by giving them a very favorable deal um, on the new stadium in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. No one had this available, and we talked about this in the last show. It's Baltimore's publicly financed stadium was a golden beacon for all other NFL teams, an ability for them to leverage their own towns into better stadium deals than they had. Uh, whatever concessions they try to get, we're always, you know, Baltimore has a publicly financed stadium on the field. And it was one of the reasons why, in my opinion, anyway, Baltimore didn't get an expansion team. So, You've certainly talked about this dynamic before, but all the owners liked that Baltimore didn't have a team because that helped them negotiate. Yep. Um, ultimately, when Modell moves to, to Baltimore, Glenn Denning also got the then Redskins to move to Maryland, where they had previously been in Washington, D.C., and they moved to Prince George's County, Maryland, the the following year. So ultimately, during that term of his, he, he lured two teams in a span of a year to his state. Mm-hmm. I had got stadium deals for both of them under the under the umbrella of the Maryland Stadium Authority. I, I talk, let's talk a little bit about um, John Stedman's view on this. Now, John Stedman, a well-known reporter in Ravens history, if you're a younger, sorry, Colts history, if Colts you're history. a younger, if you're a younger guy, you might not have heard of him before, or you might only have heard of him once or twice. But he was, uh, you know, probably the first name in in Colts journalism from their early days until the day they left Baltimore. I knew about this book from Colts to Ravens because my dad had a copy of it on his bookshelf. I hadn't read it at the time when I was living at home, but uh, I checked it out from the library. It's a very interesting book. It talks a lot about the history of the Colts from when they were founded through when they left and 
Stedman's personal relationship, like Ursay walking up to him and cursing at him and things like that. So it's very interesting on the Colts, you know, the greatest game ever played, the, the Super Bowls and so on. And then it gets into Baltimore's attempts to get another team up to Modell moving the team. And then it kind of ends there. And Stedman passed away in 2001, I think January 2001. So, um, but it's a very interesting book for that period. Okay. So you know, let's, let's talk again more. Do, is there more you want to say about the move from Cleveland? Obviously you, you hit on the important part, which is by giving the Indians a stadium, not only did he kind of slap did Cleveland kind of slap Modell on the face on him not getting their own stadium, but he also took away their tenant, which was, you know, his, one of his ways to, to make money on that dilapidated rundown place that they owned in Cleveland. So the argument from the Cleveland side is we would have given you your own stadium another year or two later. I mean, there, it hadn't been agreed to yet. Supposedly Modell at the beginning of the 95 season says, I don't want to negotiate over the stadium during the season. In 94, the Browns had made the playoffs and won a playoff game. Their coach, Bill Belichick had beat the new England Patriots in the playoffs, which is funny. Yeah. Um, but it turns out during the 95 season, he had he was negotiating, just not with Cleveland. And ultimately, he agrees to move to Baltimore during the 95 season. Cleveland turns around and says, you didn't give us a chance to counteroffer. You have just signed the papers with Baltimore and just nobody knew about it. Um, so that's part of what everyone in Cleveland is so upset about. And I think, understandably so. They, they really didn't have a chance to counter him at the time, according to Stedman's reporting. Hmm. Okay, so so you know, obviously they say they would have done it, but they had invested a lot in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know if the Cavaliers in this area in this era got a new building or not, but the you know the Indians obviously did. You know, was it a little bit of a hollow claim that they would have uh, provided a stadium, or does the fact that they built the Factory of Sadness afterward, you know, hmm. kind of legitimize that claim that they they did eventually build a stadium to get a team back when their arm was twisted all the way behind their back? That's really a matter of interpretation. I don't know. I mean, certainly they did spend the money on a football stadium the moment Modell chose to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they trusted his claims in public for many years leading up to the move that he would never move. And so they were not afraid of it happening. And that's kind of why they felt so stunned by it. And the contrast with Ursay in Baltimore is just that he, he had sort of been threatening to move all the time. And then uh, when it eventually happened, it was like, well, he had been warning about it, at least. And it's not really any credit to Ursa, but Modell's was a different style of move where the negotiations were not in the public eye. I think that the claim is that uh, the stadium authority was meeting Modell and Al Lerner on, a, on an airplane on, at BWI to talk about it in secret, things like that. I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm not hearing you. I think you're muted. That happens at least once per episode. <laughs> the regular listeners know, but um, let's, let's move on to, to the second topic here, which is the original logo of the Baltimore Ravens has some, Oh, some drama associated with it that, that didn't get resolved in court until many years later. It's a very strange story. Uh, if you were around in 96 and 97 and I was, but I was a little kid 
you, you remember the logo that's just a bee on a shield with wings on the sides of it. It's mm-hmm. kind of a, a strange logo. It's not really clear what it has to do with Ravens. Um, but anyway, that was the logo they had in 96 and 97. And the question is, well, why did they change the logo so quickly? And it turns out it was related to a legal dispute over who created the logo. Ultimately, there was a court case between the team and a artist named Frederick Bouchot. I hope I've pronounced his name correctly. But his claim was that he had submitted this design to the team through the stadium authority and that they had turned around and used it without giving him proper credit. So it ultimately goes to court over copyright infringement and the court rules in his favor that they have infringed on his copyright. And I guess they were not able to settle some sort of deal where they would keep the logo. So instead they debut what we have now, which is the logo of a Raven head, but it still has the element of the letter B on the head and the little wing coming out of the head. Mm-hmm. So it it's neither logo, I think is a particularly artistic logo. I it's, it's one of the aspects of the Ravens. That's, that's a little disappointing to me personally. And the, and the sort of the text on the jerseys of the numbers looking like little bubbles. So that's, that's one of the aspects that's unfortunate about the Ravens are being there instead of the Colts, just cause I really like the blue and white of the Colts and the, the, horseshoe but i do like the ravens as um an edgar Allan poe reference that's that's fun i i like the ravens current logo i like the sleek bird a lot more than i like the 1996-97 logo for what that's worth uh i i'd be interested to hear from other fans where they fall in on that so if you when you when this podcast is posted uh by all means respond to that which with, with which logo you like better i thought the the older logo looks a little dated to me. It looks a little busy, like some older logos of the, of the past that, that we've, uh, we've seen in the NFL. The two little wings coming out of the sides of it, it mm-hmm. kind of looks silly. Like it looks one of, like one of those goofier logos, like, uh, like the, like the old Buccaneers with the, with the pirate, with the thing in his mouth, the yes. sword in his mouth. That's, it's a little goofy in that way, but sometimes that's okay. But the cer- certainly the court case is very strange. You'd think that a million-dollar organization would be able to make a deal with this part, you know, amateur artist security guard. Mm-hmm. And for, for whatever reason, they were not able to do it. And they chose to redesign it. Right. Um, an interesting wrinkle to the story is that during this season, and I'm not sure if we'll release this episode before this or not, but... Um, during this season, they're going to have a throwback game where they're going to wear this logo on their helmets. That is going to be the December 19th game against the Packers. Okay. Are the Packers wearing an old logo in that game too? Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. All I saw was a story written by Tony Lombardi. The What he says in the story about Mr. Bouchat is that he has given the team permission to use the logo uh, in exchange for four club-level seats at the game. So that basically for the team is like giving it 1200 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's free effectively (laughs) for them. Yeah. 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 Uh, it would probably be end zone clubs and not mid-level too, if I really had to guess where he's going to be sitting for that game. But yeah, it it is interesting that that it's really a billion dollar organization. Now it was worth something close to that, even when the Ravens moved here, but the, uh, or maybe half of that anyway, but it it would, it surprising that they couldn't come to a, a number that involved, you know, could make both sides happy. $50,000, $75,000, some amount that, that, you know, Mr. Bouchot would be, Hey, you know, I'm getting something 
because they're, they, they're both, each side had some leverage, it would seem. The Ravens, you're, it's always a good idea to change your logo when you can because it's a lot more marketing money you bring in at that exact point. You sell more jerseys and other you know, memorabilia-related items. People even like having the throwbacks to a certain sense. So that's why teams change their logos a fair amount. It's, you know, that's an extra opportunity to make money. And he would have had the leverage that, you know, hey, I was the first to do it. You know, you, you can get out very cheap from under this and you can use it in perpetuity once I once I sign these paperwork from you. And I, I, I would have thought that would have been worth something to the Ravens to to get out from under the possibility of this lawsuit continuing. And and really what is a, a fairly unseemly situation. If you if you can do a web search of the logo and his drawing, it's very similar. Mm-hmm. If if. If they didn't see it and they just made their own, which is what they claimed, it's a hell of a coincidence. Now, it'd be very weird for them to just steal it. I don't know if they talked to each other and said, we're going to steal it. That would seem unlikely as well. Uh-huh. So it's a strange case. Yeah. So th- when they did finally settle in court or it, it was never resolved in court or what happened? The court ultimately ruled that his copyright was infringed, but he wasn't really entitled to very much in terms of damages. Okay. Models. Uh, team at the time tried to appeal it to the Supreme Court who refused to hear the case. Oh, wow. Okay, very good. Uh, okay, so this is a, just another kind of a weird red flag from the Modell era that was that was bad. And I, I think Baltimore, more than anything, has really wanted ownership in this town that's Baltimore-based. You know, they talk about the Under Armour guy owning owning only the Ravens would have been good. And Steve Bishotti is a good choice as well, you know, being an Eastern Shore guy and a guy with with, with ties to the area and whatnot. Um, but then Modell actually did turn the franchise over to Bishotti. He sold him a portion in 99, the rest after, what, 03, 04? I believe the rest was 2004. That was the terms of this partial sale in 99 was that he would have the right to, to buy the rest five years later. All right, so he bought, bought an option on controlling interest, probably but 49% of the team he was buying, and then he bought the rest of it in 2004. And Modell, by that, by that time, was a very old man. Uh, they did keep him around. The Ravens have, by the way, treated the Modell family pretty well, as far as I can see. When, when he was in the building, uh, even though he dropped his, his ownership share very low after 2004, they still had a, a beautiful table of the new stadium in his office that I've seen. It's a beautiful sunken table that's that's a replica of the stadium and has a piece of glass over it. And I always thought they, they, Bishotti really paid for that facility. He paid an extra $32 million, I believe, out of pocket to finish the castle. But they, they, he really did, you know, want to treat Modell well, uh, uh, you know, even though he was effectively out at that point. He he retained a 1% ownership and that gave him a pretense to maintain an office in the building and sort of hang around. And so he hung around the team in, in different ways the rest of his life. Although when, when Bishotti took over the ownership, he replaced his son, David, as the mm-hmm. team president and hired Dick Cass as the team president. Oh. All right. So that's, that was certainly a good move for, for the Ravens, but it was, was there anything funny about the sale? I know you've talked in, in the past about Modell's financial situation, and it's a little odd that he might not have had some working capital at that point. Well, it kind of goes into the story of why did he move the team? Because it seems like his argument of why he moved the team was he was in financial difficulties. And ultimately, that seems to have been correct if he was essentially forced to sell the team during his lifetime. Uh, just because he was having money trouble. There's plenty of cases where 
um, owners have to sell their teams, uh, but usually it's if an owner passes away or yes. there's a divorce. Modell is a relatively unusual case where it just seems like he was cash poor and the league ultimately orders him to find a minority owner by selling part of the team. And he's not able to do this. And that's why he had to sell the majority of the team ultimately. But I'm sure he would have preferred to maintain his ownership and pass the team on to his family. Like many other owners do. Yeah. He might've wanted to do that. I don't think it was, I don't think it was happening ever because estate taxes take a huge cut out of franchises like that. So when you, when you pass it on, you just, you don't have the ability to, to, to get to avoid those taxes and he'd have he'd have been hit what the uh, what the mara family wound up doing with the giants was they sold half the team so they right. they're co-owners now and that would about pay for the estate taxes and that'll get you through one death but you, if, if most of the most of the owners who don't have other businesses that can supply them with the cash to maintain their team i think would have the same problem the tampa bay was sold when their owner died uh i, I believe that's when the glazers bought the team uh, and but, around but, the same time that um, that the Ravens were sold, the uh, the Redskins were sold from the Cook Estate to Snyder mm-hmm. in the late nineties. Yeah, good point. That's another another example. So, yeah, these these things are just not meant to last in the same family in perpetuity. As much as you think the rich get to maintain all their assets, they generally don't. And this is this is an interesting area where uh, you know there's an opportunity for turnover. Do you think it's healthy for the league to have that? Well. What I think the model could have had, and it's it's strange to speculate because it, you know it's all counterfactual. But what he was setting himself up to be was to be kind of an elder statesman in Cleveland, sort of like the Rooney family in Pittsburgh or the Maras in New York, is that there's this echelon of the ownership of the elder statesmen who have the highest level of respect, who've been around the longest, and everybody wants to consult with them. And then there's kind of the new money owners like Snyder or Jerry Jones who had not been around as long and they're rich because they, they had to come in later. But people like, like Modell bought the team in the early sixties for $3 million at the time, which is plenty of money at the time. But I think he debt financed part of it. And maybe that led to some of his problems later on. Um, he was trying to restructure his ownership right after he gets to Baltimore. Um, he tried to do $185 million package of loans. But um, ultimately, this didn't work out because his debt to income ratios were unacceptable to his lenders. Hmm. So, both the lenders and the league went to him and said, you you need to get rid of some of this debt. And he wasn't able to do it without selling. Okay. All right. So, it had to happen. I, I, I guess the point I was making in asking that question is, I think it's probably a good thing that there is some uh, structured turnover in the NFL owners. I wouldn't want to see that group be the same group it was for 50 straight years. I, I'd want them to. I, I'd want them to turn over, just to get fresh ideas, keep the game moving forward, keep the game marketed properly. Certain certain sons of owners like uh, Spanos or uh, the Davis family. I think if I were a fan yeah. of the Raiders or the Chargers, I would have rather they sold the team yeah. than have Mark Davis as my team's owner. And I think. Comparing the ownership years of Modell and Bashotti, you have to you have to credit Bashotti for keeping a more consistently competitive product. <laughs> yes, although there wasn't that many years of Modell being here, but it's sort of tempered by these weird situations with the logo, with um, Marcia Broda being the coach, and it's seeming like they're not trying to be competitive with that. 
and eventually they hire Brian Billick. And so I, I remember reading at the time when they won the Super Bowl in 2000 that they had kind of put all their chips in on winning the Super Bowl as quickly as possible and good for them. It happened to work. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of why they went through the cap hell in 2002. Oh, yeah. And the Ravens really haven't had a year like that ever since. No, they haven't had to completely purge. The closest they really came was after 18, when they got rid of a lot of components of a very good defense, including Mosley and some other players. And lo and behold, they rebuilt on the fly immediately. Basically, by week four of the 2019 season, they completely rebuilt a very fine defense. So, yeah, it's, it, it happens. I, I think good organizations don't fear change. They, they, they are willing to live with the heartbreak of getting letting uh, players go. Uh, that 2000 team, it, it was, uh, it's, it's amazing how close they were to the window being shut, given the cap problems the, the Ravens had. Because I think, I think of that as a very young Ravens team, very young and talented Ravens team. But they had, they had veterans. They had guys that were paying a lot of money on that team that they, uh, they were able to keep that year, and they were able to make another run at it in 01, but then they had to purge in 02. It was very strange just being a teenager and not really understanding these dynamics, and suddenly in 2002, just everybody's gone. Yep. And then it was the was the 2002 season that you were a teenager at the time. Was it a special season for you? Because it was for me in terms of, of just being excited by young players playing well again. Well, because I was a kid, I didn't know any better. When they win the Super Bowl, I'm like, yay, dad, they're going to do this every year. And he's yeah. he, he knew better. Um, yeah. Said, this is special. You should savor it because this doesn't happen often. Just the kind of the run they went on where they were had the big winning streak. And then in 19, they did the same kind of winning streak. And I thought, here it is again. Didn't happen. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right. Well, Dan, it's great talking this topic about you. Obviously, the Modell situation and I, I kind of a he's revered in a way in this town, but 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 not the same way Bashadi is. And, you know, he brought football back and a lot of people, you know, want to continue to give him credit for that. Uh, Bashadi, really the guy who stabilized football in this town. It's, it's difficult because I don't really want to praise Modell. I mean, I'm glad that the Ravens are here and that had to happen some way. And the, what the Ravens fans typically say is that they were given no choice by the league. And that's a, we don't need to really go into that argument. Uh, they did try to get a team in numerous other ways before they lured Cleveland here. And, it you know, they were without a team for, for uh, 12 years, right? So that's a very long time. And my dad and my grandpa suffered through that and just basically didn't root for any team. They were not being convinced to become Steelers or Redskins fans. And I certainly understand that. Um, so it happened that way. Um, I would have liked for it to happen otherwise, but that's not that's not the way it went. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Dan, really appreciate having you on. Tell folks where they can talk football with you. So I don't really do sports for a living at all. I'm a, I work in publishing, and I just sort of talk about the Ravens games when they're on. I'm pretty big Orioles fan, but I try to, to, uh, ignore what's going on with the team lately. But, uh, my Twitter handle, if you would like to see me tweeting about this and city politics and whatever else is on my mind is DW underscore reader, which is just a joke about my initials. All right. Uh, Dan, really appreciate you coming on. I'll, I'll tell people if you want to do a 25 years episode, still have about eight of those to do at this point. Uh, hit me up with an idea uh, for a DM and you can be on like Dan and talk about whatever very narrow topic. Uh, you know, this is actually a pretty broad topic. It, it required some structure to get this done. But if you have a narrow topic, we can discuss in sub depth in about 20 to 25 minutes. That's ideal. Uh, I would love to hear from you. 
Dan, thanks again for coming on. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. Enjoyed it. You and too. We'll talk, we'll talk to you next time on okay. Film Study. Thanks. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.